0: And we will share this recording after the event on our website, youreyes.org, and via email. Again, all the recordings are available at y-o-u-r-e-y-e-s, as in Sam, dot o-r-g. These recordings have timestamps for you to navigate to speakers and topics that interest you. This forum is both a place to learn and a place to share. We welcome you to share what you are experiencing and feeling, as well as any ideas you have to overcome unique challenges at this time. We are happy to provide as much useful information as we can today. But please keep in mind, this call is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We encourage you to communicate with your medical providers regarding any personal medical questions. Housekeeping for today's meeting. All participants are initially muted in an effort to reduce background noise on the call. To unmute yourself, dial star, star, also referred to as the asterisk key on your telephone's keypad. If you are using a smartphone, you must have your screen unlocked. The meeting software uses audible alerts to indicate the participant is muted or unmuted. Some phones have self-mute options. This option will not unmute yourself from the call, so please refrain from using this option. Only star-star will unmute yourself. We will re-mute you once you are completed with your question or comment. There is a limited amount of time on the call, and with the number of people dialed in, we may not be able to address every question or concern today. We are hosting this call each month, and we are interested in hearing from you. If you do not have an opportunity to ask your question today, please contact us at 301-951-4444 or at events, E-V-E-N-T-S, as in Sam, at youreyes.org. Again, that's three zero one nine five one four 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 four, or events at youreyes.org. If you have questions for next month, send them to us through these outlets so we can be sure to be prepared. We know that there are a few vendor representatives on today's call. Welcome. If you have any information to share that you may be, be, believed to be helpful for individuals on this call, please share them with our Low Vision Learning Center hotline at 301-951-4444. At this time, I will hand off to Sean Curry, POB's Senior Programs Manager, who will briefly talk about POB and our Low Vision program.
1: Thank you, Nick, and good morning,
0: everyone. Thank
1: you again for joining us today for our town hall. As Nick mentioned, recordings of this town hall and all previous town hall recordings can be found on our website, youreyes.org. A few announcements. As a reminder, town hall calls will continue monthly on Wednesdays through the fall. We are very excited about these town halls, and encourage everyone to continue attending and invite a friend or family member. Our next town hall will be Wednesday, November 11th at 11 a.m. Again, that is Wednesday, November 11th at 11 a.m. The phone number is the same: three zero one three zero seven Two two five two. Again, the phone number is 301-307-2252. November newsletters will be out at the beginning of the month and contain this information. If you or someone you know would like to be added to our newsletter mailing list, please give our hotline a call at 301 951 or email us at events at youreyes.org. The Prevention of Blindness Society Low Vision Learning Center continues remote operations. The Resource and Information Hotline is active weekdays from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. The Center and Hotline is a great resource and information navigator. Our resource specialists, Natesh Rathad and Tara Aziz, can help find resources and technology helpful for you. The phone number for the center, again, is 3019514444. And Natesh and Tara are on the call today and available to answer questions. Attention everyone, POB is happy to have available free face masks with low vision insignia available to those with a vision impairment. These cloth face masks are a great way to mask up while also communicating with the public. DOB is working on spreading the word about these face masks with local businesses and community leaders to raise awareness of low vision and how we can help make public places more accessible. We encourage you to share as well. To sign up for a free face mask, give our hotline a call at 301-951-4444. Another announcement, the Arlington Public Library has a new series they would like to share. The series on death and dying aims to help address the importance of planning ahead and normalizing discussions about death. This series can be helpful for any age and is available via Zoom. To sign up, you can contact the Arlington Talking Books program at 703-228-6333. And if you would like that number again, you can give our hotline a call and they'll be able to provide it to you. A friendly reminder to all that voting season is upon us. We spent some time at a previous town hall discussing accessible voting options. There's now an accessible guide available on our website homepage, youreyes.org. And we recommend you check out this guide if you have any questions or concerns. Finally, tomorrow, October 15th, is National White Cane Awareness Day. And October is World Blindness Awareness Month. The white cane is not just a tool, it represents independence as well. On this day, we celebrate independence of those with blindness or vision impairments and that vision loss doesn't have to be a hindrance to attaining your goals and dreams. At this time, I would like to hand off to our moderator, Dr. Suleiman
2: Alibi. Good morning, good morning, everyone, and welcome back again to our now- monthly town hall meetings. This is our 13th meeting since the lockdown began in March. And as has said, we're going to continue to hold these meetings for the visually impaired community in the DMV, as long as you continue to benefit from them and as long as you continue to support us in holding them. We have thoroughly enjoyed doing this and I hope you're all gaining much from it too. So today, we're going to change our focus a little and concentrate on aging eye research. Typically, we've tended to leave medical topics out of our town hall meetings and have focused more on function and adaptations that you can make to optimize your sight. We've always focused on rehabilitation, but during our low vision evaluations with patients always the question comes up are they doing anything is there anything they're going to do to fix my vision problems i understand that yes we're coming to see you for rehabilitation but ideally we'd love to have our vision restored back to where we can see normally again and Many times, people wonder is there actually any research being done? Is there any work being done to help people who are visually impaired? Is what kinds of research is going on? So, today we have a world class eye care researcher and a wonderful human being who will spend some time talking about the research going on at the National Eye Institutes, National Institutes of Health. In addition, I'll cover some of the current low vision rehabilitation that's going on as well, um, but we will, we will focus on the medical aspects today more. So don't worry, there'll be ample time for questions, and I encourage you to continue to ask, Um, issues that are prevalent prevalent to you. But remember, we won't be able to answer specific questions about your specific eye condition, because this is a general forum, and it's going to be more general information. So each one of you has a different situation. You may have the same diagnosis, but the way it affects you is different. And without actually being examined, yourself individually uh, our guest won't be able to answer all your questions so try not to say here's my situation but try to keep these questions general about the condition itself so it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker today who is no stranger to me or the prevention of blindness society since she's on the Prevention of Blindness Society's Medical Committee, where she gener- generously donates her time providing leadership, expertise, and guidance. Our speaker this morning is Dr. Emily Chu. Dr. Chu is the Director of the Division of Epidemiology and Clinical Applications at the National Eye Institutes, the National Institutes of Health. In addition, she is also the Chief of the Clinical Trials Branch in the Division. Dr. Chu received a medical degree in ophthalmology training at the University of Toronto in Canada and then completed her medical retina fellowship at the Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Chu's interests include clinical trials on epidemiological studies in retinovascular diseases such as age-related macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. She has worked extensively in a multi Center trial headed by the staff for a division, including the very well-known early treatment diabetic retinopathy study, and for many of you who are familiar with the vitamins you're taking, the age-related eye diseases study, AREDs, and there's been an AREDs one and AREDs two study which she chairs. She also works on other cross-institute trials within the NIH, and she chairs the Accord I Study, which is actions to control cardiovascular risk in diabetes. She directs the clinical portion of the international studies and the Mac- Macular telling Intasia project. And as you can see, Dr. Chu comes with extensive experience and is committed to advancing medical research to preserve and improve sight. She's my colleague and my friend, and I am really honored to introduce her today Dr. Emily Chu, thank you for joining us, and I'm handing over the floor to you. Dr. Thank Chu, you. Are you
3: there. Can you hear me? Can you hear me?
2: Yes, yes, we can hear you perfect. Oh great you, Thank you so much for
3: that very generous introduction and welcome everyone. Uh, it's my great pleasure to be here to speak with all of you as Suleiman had says uh, has, has already told you, we will cover some of the research that's been done. So I'd like to perhaps describe some of the conditions. I won't be able to talk about all of them. I'm just going to focus mostly on macular degeneration. I'll say a few words about inherited retinal macular diseases, such as Stargardt that we're working on at at National Eye Institute. Uh, So some of these uh, studies will obviously be very specific to conditions, but in general, uh, you know, the research in one retinal disease can sometimes have An impact on others as well. So, these one one study, one trial may be able to give you some insight into some other diseases as well. So, age related macular degeneration, or AMD, is the most common cause of visual impairment in the United States and in the developed world. It accounts for more than half of all people who are affected with vision loss. And globally, it's about nine percent, and it's about third in terms of global cause of vision impairment. Uh, it's going to increase, you know, what we call prevalence, the number of people who are affected per population, may actually be going down a little bit because we're doing better with lifestyle, like we're smoking less, we're, we're living healthier, uh, but. Despite that, because people are living longer, the numbers will increase dramatically. By 2040, something like 288 million people across the world will be affected with AMD. Some of the uh, factors, uh, risk factors, you know, things that, that increases your risk, uh, uh, include, uh, not surprisingly, aging. It's a condition that increases with aging. Uh, smoking is something that's been seen in all studies. Smoking is never good for you in any way. So uh, here, even for your eye, health is not good. Uh, And nutrition is a a great role of nutrition in this. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then the genetics, uh, which often people talk about genetics and genetic testing. We'll delve into that as well, too. So it is a condition more of the white population. It's actually very rare in African-Americans. So it's one of the few conditions which is a huge Difference in, by race, uh, and as I said, it increases over time with 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 age dramatically, and in different racial uh, backgrounds we just discussed. And this is probably true throughout the world. We, when we look at studies uh, in India, in um, in the United States, in Europe, and Australia, and China, the early diseases are very low, and as with time goes on, as many as but 30% of people over age of 70 may have some form of max generation. So that, that is, um, you know, it's it quite a, an important condition for us to have some hopefully preventive therapy other than the arid supplement that we'll talk about later. Uh, it's really important if we can find something to reduce the risk of this burden for, for all of people affected and also the um, issue of uh, a you know, the cost of health care to everyone, uh, both to society and to individual themselves. So just to worry about smoking, there's some interesting aspects. There is a study done in Europe in which uh, it, it's it's, called, it's almost shows that there's like a dose response. In other words, the more you smoke, the more likely chance you are to actually develop um So someone who sm- smokes what we call 40 pack years, which is a huge risk, that's a lot of smoking. It's a five-time risk of having mac generation for those who never smoke, and even someone like like in between a smaller one to so-called 29 pack years, which is mild mildly to moderate smoking, that doubles your risk. So, is there any possibility if you stop smoking, it would get better? We think there is. We don't have no data to suggest it. that's absolute, but certainly is good for your general health to stop that for sure. So, what is mac generation? Um, you'll hear about people talking about drusen, which are the little yellow spots you see in the retina, which when people can't see unless they really dilate your eyes. They put drops into your eyes and it makes your pupil very large and you can't read very well and light comes in and it gives you a lot of glare. At that point, the ophthalmologist or, or the eye care profession would look in and find these yellow spots. And then you're at risk for having maxigeneration, depending on the size and the area and how much is involved. As these yellow spots evolve over time, and it may take you know many years for it to progress to the vision-threatening form, and there are two types, as you know, there's the wet form, where new blood vessels grow, and then there's the dry form, where there's just like a, a sort of withering away and sort of at what we call atrophy, the, the loss of the tissue that's important for seeing. And this is in the central part of the eye, the macula, and that's where degeneration comes from. Not only is that just the mac is affected, it actually affects the rest of the retina to a great extent as well too. Although your peripheral retina still provides you with pretty good vision, so one of the other symptoms people have early on in the course of disease is problems with dark adaptation. What do I mean by that? That means when you go into a very dim lit restaurant and you how many times have you try to read a menu, you can't read it because the the light is too dim. You can, you, you're, your ability to see in the dim light is affected. Uh, and sometimes when you go into a very dark tunnel, if you're driving from very bright light to dark tunnel, it, you almost feel like you're blind and you can't see because it's, you're, you haven't adapted to that very easily. So that's the problem with dark adaptation. You could have 20-20 vision. You have perfect vision for reading, but you may have some dark adaptation problems. And and that's one of the signs of, of macular degeneration. With time, you know it withers away, and then with wet form, you may actually have distortion. The straight lines become crooked. Maybe the first sign showing that you may have new blood vessels growing, and that's one of the reasons why your doctor, uh, your optometrist, will often give you a little graph paper with a dot in the middle and say, "Please look at that with one eye closed, and then the other. When you're reading glasses, to look for any change, any loss of those." lines or any distortion of lines would alert you to call your doctor and say there are some changes in, in your eyes. And one other symptom people don't talk much about, which I think is also important. And a certain number of people, probably upwards of 7 or 8% of people, even as many as 14 and a half percent in one of our studies, is that patients have this, what they call visual hallucinations. So-called Charles Bonnet syndrome. This is described after a neurologist who described this many in, in you know on the turn of the century, of last century that is. And we're talking about patients who see things that are not there. Uh, for example, my patients will say, "I see an underground map of London," or "I see chicken wire. These these sort of patterns, or I see blocks, or I see like a wallpaper." And then sometimes they see flowers or potted flowers or buildings, and sometimes they even see faces. But they're well aware they're not there, and sometimes they're afraid to tell us because unless people think they're going crazy, of course they're not. This is a visual hallucination, which can occur, as, as I say, as high as 15% in patients being followed in our study. So those are the changes that that one can encounter fortunate for us, if we can't treat it, Dr. Alibi with his low vision aids is is really a a person of magic. He helps people adapt so well. Uh, Every patient I've sent to him have gotten so much out of his help and his advice and his gentle care has been phenomenal. So, So this is a really important aspect of your care is a low vision aspect of this. I'm going to talk a bit about uh, sort of the timeline of of the treatment. But before I do that, maybe I'd like to talk a bit about the diet. Um, you know, back in 19, I think it was in 1980, 80, um, in the 80s, yes, 1980, uh, a group of physicians looked at a study that's called the National Health and Nutrition Examination, the NHANES study. This is a study that occurs every few years. The government supports this. And every few years, they go around asking the, certain people in the population of the US, asking them, what do you eat? Uh, what diseases do you have? And it looks at sort of general population, general health. And back then, we were able to realize that people who have diet very rich in fruits and vegetables, with vitamin A and C, for example, that the more they ate, the less likely they would have macrogenerationals. In other words, Eating fruits and vegetables was good for you and reduce your risk of macular degeneration. So that was published in 1980, and and then from then on, we actually had a study that started in 1992 that was the AREDS study, Age Related Eye Disease Study. We were interested in looking at the natural history, what happens to people over time with cataracts and Mac Degeneration. So this was supposed to be a natural history study just describing what people see, what people do and what happens to them and what was the course of the disease because we had very little information on that. And this was a very valuable study because during that study, our investigators said, well, we don't wanna just watch natural history. Let's do something. Can we do something at all? And remember in the nineties, that was a huge time when vitamins were thought to be really important for reducing heart disease, for reducing cancer. Uh, they had large studies looking at vitamin C, vitamin E. Uh, and beta-carotene in particular was, was something that they were very interested in to see whether they can reduce heart disease or cancer. And so we came along with our study and the nutritional uh, experts, you know, Advices and so you should look at this. There's some thoughts that maybe uh, that may be very important. And we did have some data suggesting, as we, as I told you, that fruits and vegetables are important, but we didn't know what exactly in, in those fruits and vegetables and other things that really made a difference. So we merely went ahead and said, okay, we'll talk to our experts and we came up with, uh, with the, with, with like, with basically the arid supplement. And the other piece of information came from a study uh, that was done in Utah, and they suggested that taking a lot of zinc was important to reduce the risk of degeneration. And zinc is found in the eyes, so they thought that was really important to have, and not for any other reason. So so along comes ARITs, we watched the people, and we then decided to do a trial where we flipped the coin and half the patients got this and half the patient got that. And in the end, what did we find? So we tested vitamin C, half a gram or 500 milligrams, vitamin E, 400 international units, and beta-carotene. Beta-carotene was 15 milligrams, which was a very high dose, and also zinc given with copper. The copper was important because it prevented people from uh, getting anemic uh, because zinc can cause that. But having copper, removes that fear of getting anemic, and that was really true. It was very helpful to do that. So the study uh, was finished in 2001. In 2001, we found that this combination was able to reduce the risk of having uh, people who already have the disease, they have the drusen, that they did not go on to late disease by about 25%. So it's, you know, it's not a cure, but it had a modest effect the effect was important because that in itself can reduce 300,000 people in the next five years from going blind. So it's a pretty significant public health impact. And prior to this, we had laser photocoagulation, which was used to re- to treat the wet form of macular degeneration, and that, of course, has fallen by the wayside because it causes it destroys the retina in the area where you really need to be seeing. But at the time, that was the best we could do, and we did do better than having no laser treatment. And even before the ARIT supplement, there was a a, a study on photodynamic therapy, or so-called PDT, in which the drug was injected into the veins and a cold laser was put on the eye, and that helped to reduce vision. But again, that has fallen out of favor for most of macrogeneration. It's still used for certain things and it still has a role, just as laser still has a role in, in treating eye disease. But 2001 is when we had the landmark paper showing that the ARIT supplement was really important for preventing degeneration. Uh, what was important in the ARIT study was the fact that we, and so who should be taking it? There's people who already have large drusen or who already have the disease, People who didn't have a very early disease was not helped by this. So only when you have a certain stage is this helpful. And you should be seen by an eye doctor before you start this. And what's important in the ARIS was that we have studied the diets of all the patients. We had nearly 5,000 patients in the study. We followed them for 10 years. And we asked them these pesky questions. They were really long-winded questions that went on for days, it seemed like, for patients. But it was a very long what we call a food frequency questionnaire. We ask you what you ate in the past year. And that showed us two things that popped out. Green leafy vegetables were important in reducing the risk of having macrogeneration as it was with eating a lot of what we call omega-3 fatty acids. This were fish oil and eating fish was important. Eating fish twice a week reduced the risk and the, and the green leafy vegetables was also important. So along came another study. In 2006, we, did, we had not looked at what's in green leafy vegetables, which is usually called lutein and zeaxanthin. It's one of the vitamins that's important for your eye. and It's particularly important because in the center part of your eye, the macula is made up of lutein and So we added that as well as omega-3 to the ARID supplement to see whether we can improve the supplement. And lo and behold, omega-3 made no difference. So the fish oil was not effective. Fish oil was not added, and fish oil really did not help in any way. So we went ahead and looked at the lutein, zeaxanthin, and especially in people who had very low in- intake, for example, people who never eat green veg- leafy vegetables, they were helped. They actually had an improvement uh, by having lutein-suzanthine. But what was even more important was the fact that we knew going in the study that beta-carotene was troublesome because it increased the risk of lung cancer in our patients that were randomized in two other studies, not the ARIT study, but two other studies that were looked at uh, by the NIH, uh, one in Finland and one in the United States. People given beta-carotene had an increased risk of lung cancer. And in the ARITs too, we found that patients who were taking beta-carotene, there was double the risk of lung cancer compared to people who were taking lutein zeaxanthin. So, for safety reasons, we actually took away the beta-carotene, so the ARDS II supplement has lutein fuzanthine, has, uh, has the vitamin C, vitamin E, and zinc and copper. And we did not put in omega-3, so the average two, as it is, is what we've got. So that was one of our major research uh, endeavors. And we then since looked at diet by itself. Uh, you know, you know, you've heard of the Mediterranean diet, right? This is something that's very popular. People have actually looked at it in a clinical sense, in 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 clinical trials, even. Uh, you know, they figured out. In, in, in I think in the 50s, I can't remember exactly when, but it was a long time ago when they looked at patients who were living in the island of Crete in Greece and found that their heart disease was very low. People were living for a long time. They were very low heart disease. And they figured that was probably the Mediterranean diet they were on. And they've actually done a study in which they uh, flipped the coin. And in Spain, 7,000 patients were uh, studying in the in this clinical trial, and they found that having a Mediterranean diet reduced the risk of cardiovascular disease, heart disease, by about 30%. And so that's really quite interesting. What is a cardi- what, what exactly is a Mediterranean diet? Well, that's a diet that's really low in red meat and refined sugar, high in whole grains, and mon- monounsaturated fat rather than saturated fat is taken, in like olive oil, for example. Moderate intake of fish and white meat and dairy and very low to moderate intake, really more low to the alcohol intake, and a high consumption of fruits, vegetables, nuts, and legumes. So it's another really healthy diet. And we actually studied that in our ARICS population, ARICS-1 and ARICS-2 population, and we found that indeed, the Mediterranean diet was very, very effective in reducing the risk of of macrogeneration. And what was driving it was actually Getting fish. Fish was probably one of the most important components in this Mediterranean diet. It reduced the risk by almost 30%, which is a pretty high amount. And that was reducing people from going to late disease. And if you have early disease, can it prevent you from going to intermediate, it's like sort of moderate-sized type of things you have? And even if you have very early disease, you were prevented by about 30% of having uh, the next steps. So it seems to be it's never too late or too early to start a Mediterranean diet. So that's really an, an important aspect that we're very happy to, to, to tell you about. And what's also important was that we looked at cognitive function. We studied that in all our patients, both ARITS-1 and ARITS-2, to see whether uh, there was any relationship. And, and interesting enough, the Mediterranean diet, also had an effect on cognitive function. It reduced the risk of progression in this, with having fish. Mediterranean diet was associated with a, with a better, the higher Mediterranean diet, the better your 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 cognitive function score was. So there, you know, and in the literature, this is not new. This is seen. So you are what you eat. So it is really important to consider that. And finally, let's talk a bit about the genetics a little bit. Um, You know we talk a lot about genetics and you hear about it from various folks you know genetics uh, is important because this disease uh, can be inherited but it's not the type of inheritance you think about like down syndrome for example you know the gene gets passed on one generation to another this is not such a disease that's called a monogenic disease one gene disease the mac generation has many genes it's got like 35 areas but 50 known areas that are really affected and probably many more than that and so it's multiple genes and it interacts with the environment so some people who have the gene may not even ever get the disease because they don't smoke because they live very healthily or maybe if something else is happening or maybe some combination of genes makes it neutralizes it so it's very hard to predict. It's not like you get a genetic test, you can tell this is Down syndrome, it's not, such a, it's not so simple. But gene, uh, getting genetic t- testing is important for research because we can understand perhaps how the disease occurs and whether we could intervene in a certain way. But taking the gene, genetic testing to predict whether you'll get a disease or whether it will affect your treatment is not very helpful. That has not been proven in any way. So genetic testing in the whole for the public has not been very useful. But if you were to go to a researcher such as myself who's interested in that, we are encouraging you to have it done so we can understand the disease a lot better. And I think the American Academy of Ophthalmology, that's our, you know, organization that tells us, how, you know, how to, how to, uh, how to take care of our patients? Give us professional guidelines. Have given very strict guidelines as to genetic testing that we should not be doing that in in any case. So in terms of other treatment, you all well, know I know, I know you all know about the wet form, which is given by these what we call anti VEGF uh, injections. These injections are to counteract one specific factor that promotes new blood vessel growth, and by putting in the eye, we can reduce the risk of, of vessel growth. So it doesn't get rid of it, it's often there. And sometimes you need it more frequently than others. Some patients need it on a monthly basis. I have a patient who had it for four or five years, almost on a monthly basis, yet her vision is 2020. But there are patients who always don't respond to all these treatments. And there are different types of, of these anti vegf therapy. You've heard of Avastin, you've heard of Lucentis and Ilea. Uh some are no longer acting, some may not be. Uh but on the general in and on the whole, there's been studies looking at comparison of them. There is not a huge difference. Uh there's some minor differences, but it is a, a huge treatment burden because you're required to come to the doctor's office. And that means bringing your family member. Others have to lose time for work or whatever. So it is a lot of work on your part to do that, to come in and be seen on a regular basis. And often uh, it doesn't always, and as to say, it doesn't always bring the vision back. It does improve vision in some cases. It's one of the first, first treatment that we've had that actually improves vision in some cases. but It stabilizes what you have. And what we are now looking at, research-wise, is whether we can prolong that treatment or give it give it a different form. So there is a trial where they're actually putting in a little device in which you can fill it, like every three months, you can fill it, and, and it would just disperse the, the drug. So you would have fewer uh, treatment uh, or fewer treatments itself, and fewer visits to the doctor's office. But that right now is still experimental and hasn't been proven. Uh, one other drug, uh, Bovue, has been been already uh, assessed and been uh, FDA-approved, and that is to, uh, supposed to in, increase the duration of the drug. In other words, to be fewer visits again. Uh, that drug is being uh, uh, investigated a little bit more because it causes some inflammation in the eye. And then there are other, other um, drugs that we're looking at, other things we're looking at even gene therapy uh, may be considered, but those studies are are far from being close uh, to being part of this. At the National Eye Institute, what we're doing is studying the different aspects of macrogeneration. Dr. Kathy Krukris, one of my colleagues, is looking at the function of macrogeneration. And that's very important, trying to figure out, you know, the dark adaptation problems. What does it mean? Does it help to predict other des- uh, how fast the disease goes? And does it predict other aspects? So she's doing some very important studies looking at the outcomes and what happens to that, uh, and what happens to the dark adaptation uh, with certain drugs, et cetera. So that's really a, a very important part of that. Um, and of course, the the other form, the geographic atrophy, what we call GA, you may have heard of, the dry form of vaccination, that's, that's, that's a more common form that you know in which the new blood vessels have not taken over, but it just slowly withers away. That is the form which we have really no treatment for, and it's been very difficult. A number of studies have, have been uh, conducted, and they've all been negative, including injections of drugs that hopefully would reduce the inflammation. Uh, right now, at the, at the National Institute, we are doing a study on uh, dry flow maceration using minocycline, which is a, uh, a an antibiotic, which may have an effect on some of the pathways in which the maceration might might actually be effective. And obviously, this is still ongoing study. Uh, we are looking at patients with this. Uh, there are other studies ongoing uh, throughout the city and throughout the country. Uh, again, uh, the, looking at injections of of these drugs that again reduce the risk of what we call the complement, uh, which is part of the inflammatory process that goes on. And that uh, there are several studies that are ongoing uh, in that realm. Uh, there are. Uh, very specific drugs are given by mouth as well to help improve what we call the mitochondria, the energy house of the of the cell. So you know that every cell needs sugar and and all sorts of energy to keep it going. And it's thought that perhaps the energy uh, housing in the next generation may not be so good, and we can boost that. And some of the companies are looking at that aspect of that. Um, and, of course, there are a number of other studies that have been done looking at, uh, at implanting uh, telescopes within the eye and things like that. And also, uh, you know, one of the other key studies that are ongoing now in active generation, which is tight experimental and really at the very early stages is looking at stem cell. Uh, and that itself is far from being close to being... Uh, to be definite. And there are very early studies that have been ongoing. Uh, there have been a few more studies. Uh, where We're I'm working on that very slowly ourselves. But a number of studies have been done throughout the world, looking at that, both the wet form and the dry form. We have no good conclusions at this point to suggest anything in, in that realm. And most of all, it's really important to get the low vision evaluation no matter where you're at. Even if you have fairly moderately good vision, Dr. Alibi can always help you in some way uh, to improve what you've got. So, speaking of matter changes, the other one of the studies I want to highlight that's happening in uh, at the National Institute is looking at Stargardt's disease, which is uh, sometimes called a juvenile mac degeneration. It occurs in a much earlier stage. Again, it's like the dry type of mac degeneration. We see in AMD. However, we also can get the wet form. So in all these cases, uh, the, we can have a, these new vessels can grow uh, and it could be treated in a similar way with these injections. For the Stargardt's disease, we are looking at a natural history to figure out how do we study any changes and what a change would be effective when we go to the FDA. Remember, these treatments have to be done with regulatory approvals, very strict guidelines. So looking at how we do this is extremely important and the measurements of the disease Is not so simple. It's not like you just come up and get a picture. We know what the the picture is. There's a lot more than that. And, you know, we measure um, changes on a photograph. We measure changes on what we call OCT, optical coherence tomography, that actually measure each different layers of the retina. So imaging in ophthalmology has become very sophisticated. And there are many things we can do to see how we can measure whether our treatments are effective or not. And we are very devoted to doing that, to do the best we can with a minimum of invasion of, of you and either injections or other things, trying to do it in a very non-invasive way to do as much as we can to improve, uh, the site. For our patients with macrogeneration and Stargardt's disease, of course, there are other conditions such as uh, retinal degenerations, um, uh, renal pigmentosa. There are a number of studies that are ongoing, which we don't have a number going on right now, but we are studying. Um, Dr. Kathy Kukis is again studying the the, the effect of uh, uh, you know what what are the the correlating imaging images that have changes over time. And again, this is with the goal to find What can we measure that is important for these studies? Some of the studies have been done using measurements that are perhaps difficult to do, or sometimes they're not accepted by the FDA. So these are things that we need to take into account quite seriously to to look at all these. And obviously, um, genetic testing is important in those with macular dystrophy. People with inherited diseases, genetic testing is very important. It may be able to tell them I give them some idea of prognosis, but a lot of them we don't have an idea of where it would be. But it does help in some way to pin down some of the diagnosis. And in the future, when we have more studies that are more gene-oriented, that would be very helpful uh, in in perhaps predicting uh, what studies to put people in and then also studying the disease uh, mechanism. You know, how does the disease go on? What can we do to intervene? Where can we go in to stop this process? So all those are important scientific questions that we have. National eye Institute is, is just one of 27 institutes at NIH. Uh, our, full, our our mission is to do research to improve the health and eye care of all Americans uh, who have eye and visual impairment. Uh, there's a lot going on. We fund a lot of outside activities. Um, in fact, majority of our money goes to the what we call extramural, the people on the outside. Only about 10, 11% are actually in and within our own institute. But we do make use of that money. We're also very grateful for all the participants who come to our studies and participate. Only when we have willing participants who will take on some of these. Uh, challenging aspects of the clinical trials can we get answers to treatment so we're very grateful to all of you who have come to the NEI and who participate in other clinical trials uh, which sometimes are done very altruistically you may not have a lot of uh, uh, you know feedback or a lot of um, reward back but it might be able to inform us what we could do with the next study and the next generation so that really is very important uh, and again, I'd like to thank the NEI for supporting all the studies that we do. I'd like to thank Prevention Blindness for doing all they do for helping us, uh, get messages to, to folks and, and helping to screen for patients for all sorts of conditions that they're very active in. And also thanking the Dr. Alibi for his, re- major important role in the society and also in the role of helping our patients with vision loss. So with that, I would like to uh, take questions from any of you. Is, is this is this a good timing, Karen? Is this good?
2: Yes, Emily, this is a perfect time to take questions. First of all, let me let you catch your breath and thank you for a wonderful, exhaustive, and detailed um, explanation of some of the clinical trials and the things that are being Done to help individuals with macular degeneration, star guards, and other conditions. Um, for the benefit of the listeners today, I know you might think, "Oh my gosh, when am I going to remember all that? How am I going to re- get back to all this information?" Don't worry, this is being recorded, and as you know, will be um, posted—not not immediately, but within a couple of days on the website where you can go back and take your time and listen to all the great information that Dr. Chu has provided us here today. So um, thank you, thank you very much again for um, taking the time today and going in such detail and depth about all of this. So as Dr. Chu says, she is open to questions. And so um, I will ask Sean to explain to you once more how you unmute yourself and ask your questions, Sean. Thank you, Dr. Alibi,
1: and thank you, Dr. Chu, for a really great presentation. I know I learned a lot. I've got about three pages of notes now, so I can't wait to read through them again. (laughs) Um, So for everyone on the call, if you would like to ask a question, you're currently muted, and to unmute yourself, you press the star or asterisk button twice. So that's star, star, and it'll prompt you saying that you have been unmuted. Um, So feel free to ask questions when you're ready.
3: Oh, Sean, I had one more thing I wanted to just say. I meant to tell, I meant, I meant to say something about this. Um, I wanted to introduce our new director of the National Eye Institute, Dr. Michael Chang, who will be joining us, we don't know when, but soon. He comes from Oregon. He was the chair of department there at University of Oregon. Uh, at the, it's the Oregon Health and, uh, Health and Sciences University, is what it's called, from Portland, Oregon. And he has a great interest in big data. So he's interested in taking, you know, the electronic medical records, taking lots of fun photographs, all the photographs that we take of your eyes, and then trying to figure out how we can learn from it with artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, and other things. So he's gonna be a great addition to our group and he's gonna be, uh, I think, spearheading some very interesting work. He himself is interested in retinopathy of prematurity, uh, which is also a significant public health problem that that we have as well. So with that, Sean, to you. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr.
1: Chu. And we look forward to seeing the new director and all he has uh, moving forward. So, okay, everyone, you can go ahead and ask your questions. And again, to unmute yourself, it's star star. An email in a question to us, and that question was uh, So, this person has wet AMD and gets injections of ilea every 28 days in each eye. She knows that some res- retina specialists are willing to give shots both or give both shots on the same day while others only do one eye at a time. Why do uh, different doctors have different thoughts on this, and which is the typical recommendation?
3: That's a very good question. Well, it's quite often that patients do have the disease in both eyes, and sometimes it's difficult to be coming almost like every other week to get one eye and then the other eye injected. And so a number of patients uh, do receive treatment in both eyes at the same visit. I think some doctors are not quite as comfortable doing that it's the art of medicine and there's no fast or hard rules for that. Uh, we at the National eye Institute will do the same two eyes in the same visit and we do it by injecting one eye and they of start starting all fresh and clean up and and we ask we do, do another pr- procedure so that we try to be clean. I think the theory is that if you have an infection you don't want to have both eyes infected and that's why people are more cautious about injecting both eyes at the same time. So it is a matter of philosophy for the physician and what they're comfortable with and what their office practice might be. So that that all plays into it. There's maybe a right or wrong answer to this, but it is the comfort. And sometimes patients, I have patients who don't wish to have it because they really want to have one eye um, not treated. So it's a combination. As always, when we make decisions, I make it with my patient uh, and also with what we think is, best practice that we can. And, and there's really, as I said, no fast or hard rule on this one.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so we have a uh, phone number ending in 7032. Do you have a question? Yes, thank you. Um, my name is Maria. I just wanted to
3: find out um, if the studies on the drug macular degeneration still enrolling patients. Um, they are enrolling patients. There's a number of them uh, that are ongoing. Uh, well, we, we have, them, we have them in the the at the National Eye Institute that is still enrolling. We have a natural history study in which we're looking at falling patients with the dry uh, macular generation. We definitely are enrolling, and there are other studies, you know, in the, in the area. People uh, are, are injecting other drugs that. That hope to stop macrogeneration. and so so yes, there's a number of trials ongoing for sure. Okay, thank you. You're welcome,
2: Doctor Chu. I'll ask some of the questions that I know patients have asked me, and and I know it'll address some of the questions that are probably on the calls. But sometimes it's hard for people to actually unmute themselves and ask these questions. So. One of the questions I get a lot is that, if fish is so helpful, um, why don't we just take the omega-3 vitamins? Um, is that not as useful as eating fish?
3: That's a really good question. So we did take, we did do a study where we just gave the fish oil and we found no difference at all. So the fish in itself has probably many things other than the fish oil. Maybe the fish oil only works if you comes with something else in the fish, or it only works because something else is working in the fish, and not the fish oil at all. So it's hard for us to know for sure what what the actual you know ingredient in the fish that's actually causing or or, or that's being protective or, or helpful. So uh, clearly, there's been a number of trials looking at fish oil, not only for eyes, but for for cognitive function, for for dry eyes, for example, and for um, I, I think that's been tried in Stargardt's as well, but that's a very small study. But most of the studies, especially in the larger trials, we have not found really any positive effect. It was only many years ago, fish oil got a really good name because it stopped the cardiovascular disease issues. But that was the days before we had things like statins. Now we have these statins, you know, for lowering cholesterol. That that And the more recent studies show no effect of fish oil in any of the other uh, of diseases, so in other words, fish oil really was thought to be an end all be all for all sorts of conditions and has proven to be zero and Even the cardiologist has you know recommended to people with heart disease that you should eat fish twice a week that's a that's really a good cardiac good diet for people with cardiac disease, so clearly, there's something in the fish that we haven't put our finger on,
2: thank you, yes. And does it matter what kind of fish we eat, or any fish is good?
3: Well, we, you know, I, I don't know for sure because we don't have a good feeling from our we don't have a good questionnaire that, that parses up the different types of fish. But what's known in the literature is that salmon, like the cold water fish, seem to have uh, a, a better uh, protection. Uh, the deep or sort of deep cold water fish might be the best but any fish, but even shrimps, you know, any of the seafood is supposed to be helpful. Uh, so, so I guess it also, in fact, you eat fish, you may not eat other things that might be harmful, but even when you look at red meat, people eat red meat and, and fish, it's is not not because you don't eat red meat, but the fish itself really is important, so.
2: Right, thank you, thank
0: you. Can you hear me? Go ahead. Yes, yes. go ahead yeah uh my name's Ed Dunn and uh i'm 83 years old and i've had uh, macular degeneration in both eyes for uh about a year and a half so it's uh you know, restricted me in a in a lot of activities but the question i have is uh, i received a, in the mail a brochure about the uh telescopic implant is there uh, any uh Information
3: out there, do they work, don't they work or they i I think someone, you can address that when you're you're really good at that because yeah. you've done some work with it let yes,
2: um done. Let me try and answer that question um because it's more related to rehabilitation yeah. um, than it is to treatment itself, so for those people who may, may not have understood the question is for age related macular degeneration. There was an FDA-approved trial for an implantable telescope, and it's called the IMT, the Implantable Miniature Telescope. And it's based on our strategy of using telescopes externally, like binoculars, to enhance people's vision who have macular degeneration. So many of you um, with macular degeneration have often said, you know, I find it fascinating that when I hold up a pair of binoculars, it somehow overrides my macular degeneration and I can see things better at the distance. And, and that makes sense because, of course, in macular degeneration, it's like having a blind spot in the center of your vision And when you use a pair of binoculars or telescopes, it's like getting very, very close. You're bringing the object so close that it sort of overrides the impact of that blind spot or scotoma, as we call it, in the vision. And we've used, um, I'm going to hesitate to use this word, but telescopic glasses, in a sense, where people have glasses with an externally mounted telescope or a monocular, for helping people with macular degeneration see certain objects at a distance now the downside of telescopes is they reduce the field of view that means you don't see as much looking through a pair of binoculars or a telescope as you would with your bare eyes you're limited to that small window that the, the telescope is producing so the closer you can bring it to the eye the bigger the window becomes, like looking through a keyhole. And the closer you get to the keyhole, the more of the room you would see. So this um, company in Israel actually developed a miniature telescope, so small that it could actually be put inside the eye. And the way it's done is during cataract surgery, for most of you who have had cataract surgery and are familiar with it, you know that the lens the natural lens in the eye which turns into the cataract is removed and instead an implant or an intraocular lens which is just like a normal lens is is placed inside the eye instead of the cataract and nowadays we can have a implant with the prescription in it and which is why many people after cataract surgery will say You know, I used to have to wear glasses, but I had cataract surgery done, and the intraocular lens or implant they put inside my eye has got rid of my cataract, but also meant that I don't have to wear any glasses anymore. So in the same way, this company has developed a very small miniature telescope called the IMT, which is now placed inside the eye much like what is done with the intraocular lens during cataract surgery but this time instead of the lens being put inside the eye it's actually this miniature telescope and in the studies it showed that it works not surprisingly because it still is effectively working like a pair of binoculars or a telescope bringing things closer to that eye and enhancing the image now the downside as i pointed to earlier is that you you don't have any peripheral vision then so the things that happen is that patients have different types of images in each eye so imagine having a monocular a telescope in front of one eye and then the other eye seeing things normally well you won't be able to fuse the two images you have two very different sized images and so you do lose binocularity it's not like you have the same binocular vision that you would have normally and the other downside is that in the eye you have the implanted telescope you give up all the peripheral vision so you you will essentially have telescopic vision with one eye only that you couldn't walk around with if you had if you didn't have good peripheral vision in the other eye it would be very difficult to even walk because all you'd see is what you see through the telescope so it has been FDA approved, it's done in one eye only, and it's typically done, instead of the standard cataract surgery, so you still have a procedure like cataract surgery, but instead of the intraocular lens, you have the IMT placed in the eye, and then it, then you do need to go through some extensive rehabilitation to learn how to use the telescope and how to adapt to it. So. In the early clinical trials, we had about 10 people who were done. And currently, I have about three patients who still have this implantable telescope in, in one eye. And um, our, our, uh, the process of getting approved to go through this is your retina specialist will refer you to an ophthalmologist who does um, this procedure. And in our area, Dr. Jay Lesbader, um, who's at Georgetown, is uh, is one of the physicians who has been doing these implantable telescopes. And then after you've had the telescope implanted, you have to see a low vision specialist like myself or Dr. Uh, Dahlia, who works with me. And then we in turn refer you to an occupational therapist and it takes about six months before you can truly adapt to this thing properly. So I will say in summary that it is a strategy, it is FDA approved, it is covered by Medicare, but it's not for everyone. And like any tool in low vision rehabilitation, it's another tool simply and it's a strategy and it comes with its pros and cons, which each individual who is interested in going through this should sit down with their doctors, with the retina specialists and the low vision specialists before you say, yes, I'm gonna go ahead and get that done. So I'm sorry for the long explanation, but I, I hope that helps Mr. Dunn.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. It is, in the brochure and all, it sounds complicated when you talk about coordinating your peripheral vision in one eye and then the telescopic image in the other eye
2: exactly exactly it is it is complicated, and for many of my patients um the thought of giving up peripheral vision in one eye and then having each eye seeing very different images um you know is a bit disconcerting and even during the study, there were some people who who simply could not.
3: Um, get it
2: adjusted to it so like i said it's not for everyone but there are people who've had it done um who would say you know it that to some extent it works for them it's not like normal vision but it 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 does work but it's another tool or another strategy in in this whole um, armamentum of different visuals visual
3: aids is, is it easy to predict who would do well with this filament or, or, or difficult to predict?
2: The method that I use, Dr. Chu, is I always say to um, any patient who's interested is take this monocular telescope, which is an external handheld telescope, yeah. and see if you're able to use it in day-to-day life and see what benefits it gives you. Cause Telescopes are typically more useful for distance things than reading things. Yeah. And if they are able to use that, then I then I'd suggest, okay, imagine now having this permanently in your eyes and try to keep both eyes open and see what your world would look like. Um mm-hmm. and, and then finally, you know, try and get um the the surgical procedure done. That's
3: good advice. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the question. Any other questions out there for Dr. Chu?
3: Dr. Alibi, this is Janice. This is kind of a combo question. <clears throat> Given right. that you know our um, medical history, could one contact you and you confer with Dr. Chu to see if... Um, the patient would be eligible
2: for any of the current NEI trials? Okay, thank you all. Bye now. Bye-bye. So, Janice, yes. You know, in fact, um, w- and we should probably at some point give out the information for how to um, g- go to the National Eye Institute for a trial or a potential to be screened, I should say. Maybe that's the word yeah. I'm looking for, right.
1: to be mm-hmm. screened
2: for a trial. So there is mm-hmm. a process, and, you know, absolutely. Am, am I going to say I should just look at your chart and then Dr. Chu should look at her chart? Probably it's better if you actually go there for the screening itself. Mm-hmm. And, and And at that point, all the different aspects of your vision will be evaluated, and then from the NEI, they'll tell you that, look, based on the types of changes in your eyes, here are the different trials you might be eligible for,
3: Mm -hmm. and
2: um, that's the most effective way to do it. What would you say, Dr. Chu, is that? Oh, I,
3: I would agree. I read? agree, yeah. Often the patients that we send to Dr. Alibi, we've already uh, evaluated, unless there are patients that you've seen outside of any eye, we don't know. But, but obviously, we, we 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 go through the imaging. Uh, quite often, we look at the visual function. Aside from visual acuity, we look at other things as well. And we also look, uh, we take photographs of the eye and, and, and do some imaging that uh, that's May or tell us, you know, uh, that may, may may not be eligible for the studies, and so there's a fairly strict criteria. And um, and yes, we could definitely screen that way. We could give you the information on how to contact the, our our coordinators for that. Okay, yeah, that would I be think
2: great. Mm-hmm. would it be helpful, Doctor Chu, for me to give Elaine's name and yeah, phone number name would be
3: best. yeah, yeah. Elaine would be the best. Elaine would be best. Elaine
2: Bell. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm going to give you. Uh, Again, for the sake of this recording, so everybody listening, you don't have to worry about writing this down necessarily, and our low vision resource Um, navigators would also be able to give you this, but whenever a patient asks me, would I qualify for a study at the National Eye Institute, is there a trial that I could perhaps participate in, I always say, okay, you need to call Elaine. Her name is Elaine Balut, B-A-L-U-T, and her phone number is 301-402-4726. And typically, Elaine then contacts your doctor and asks for an eye report first. So it's not as though she just scheduled you an appointment, and typically Elaine would send me a note and say, would you fax me an eye report on this patient um, who's interested in the clinical trial, and then she will schedule a screening appointment at the National Eye Institute, at which point, like Dr. Chu describes, you go through all this imaging and testing and so on and so forth, and then they'll tell you that, look, based on the findings on your in your eyes, um, these are the studies that would be most appropriate, and then they'll give you information about what does it involve every study is you know requires a lot of different steps and participation from you and you would have to consent to all of that so so it is it is a, a very comprehensive process
1: in general is the initial screening is that one day or is that a multi-day process
3: Usually it's one day, <clears throat> usually it's one day, but it could be multiple days if, if it's just too much for one patient. For most parts, mm-hmm. it's usually one day. And sometimes we just look at the, the reports and be able to tell also. So as, as, as Dr. Alibi mentioned, you know, he would forward the, the, the reports, but someone who's not seen him, they would have to get their doctor, give permission to their doctor to fax the reports to, to Elaine and we could look at it. Um, so that could, pre- that could also help to prevent bringing you uh, when you know we know you're not going to be eligible, we don't have to bring you in and and and, and cause you you know more more ang- angst and 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 trying to get to our our system, which is not so easy, unfortunately. Coming to N- NIH is like a fortress. So
1: yes, I'm familiar. <laughs> Thank you yes. very much.
2: Dr. Chu, is the National Eye Institute doing any screening right now, or do you, because of the lockdown? Yeah, the um, lockdown,
3: is has, I was going to just say the lockdown has really, you know, curbed our our, our ability to do very much at this point, because there's just, uh, we only have limited number of slots for patients, uh, because it's because social distancing, we've taken away a lot of the chairs and, and People can only come and you have to have special permission to bring someone else with you. It's, it's, you know, If someone comes with you, you may have to come up by yourself and that's, that's not so easy for our patients with visual impairments. So all that is really uh, making it pretty difficult for us. But we're hoping that will be lifted up uh, in, in the next little while. But it, right now, it's still pretty, pretty tight.
2: Okay. Any other questions out there for Dr. Chu?
3: I have a question please for Dr. Chu. Go
2: ahead please. Thank you.
3: Okay. Thank you. I've enjoyed this talk very much. Um Dr. Chu, I was wondering if you could spend a little time talking about diabetic rep- retinopathy. Um I'm a type 1 diabetic um and back in 1979 I had laser surgery. Um so it's now been about 40 years and um I'm, I'm sort of between ophthalmologists at this point, but there are um, it, it, the, the, the initial um, effects was, were absolutely great, but I'm now seeing a decrease in my vision. And anyway, I was just wondering if you could talk a little about uh, long-term results of, of laser surgery on a... Yes, ma'am. Go right ahead. Okay. Super. Well, thank you for your question. and. I'm sorry, i was having some problems now. And uh, you actually, are, you know, have benefited from a treatment that's been remarkable. Uh, I once went to give a, an introduction of of a man named Dr. Lloyd Aiello at the in Boston. He was part of the Joslin Clinic, and he was one of the few people who started the laser. And this is about 20 years ago. I went because he was getting a special award. Um, for his innovation the laser really saved people in those days you know in the in the 50s and 60s people were 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 coming in with their seeing eye dogs because if you develop the new blood vessels for for diabetic retinopathy you were likely to have you know very severe vision loss by five years so that has changed dramatically because of laser laser is 95 percent effective in reducing the risk of severe vision loss Um, and this was proven by that study that we did and the in the in the 80s and it's called ETDRS diabetic early treatment diabetic retinopathy study Uh, and and that really and we went ahead and actually followed patients 25 years later after they had the laser it was remarkable 80% 80% of patients were actually still driving. They had vision good enough to drive. So laser was very durable. Um, and it's possible that you're having more vision loss as you had cataracts something, you know, and that's one thing you have to look for, the other cataract changes. And the retina itself um, may have continuous changes, but the, but the effects of diabetic retinopathy are usually over a period of time. And if you laser it, or now the more recent treatment has been giving injections. The same injections we give for, for macrogeneration So patients can lose vision from diabetic retinopathy or diabetic eye disease from two forms. One is when they uh, develop fluid in the center part of the eye, the macula, we're talking about the macula again. If that is swollen, it doesn't work as well. Your vision is blurred. And the other more menacing problem is the fact that patients with diabetes have this loss of blood vessels, the small vessels in the eye, just, they just basically die out. And so new blood vessels sort of come in to compensate for it. And these are abnormal new blood vessels. They can cause hemorrhages. So people have floaters. They have a complete blockage of their vision. And what's further even more menacing is the fact that it can cause the retina to detach. So those are the really end stage bad things that have been prevented. Laser did a great job of reducing that. And the injections will also be good for reducing both the new blood vessels as well as the swelling. And laser is still being given. Laser is really still very important. It's a very durable treatment. For patients who have who cannot be coming frequently for those injections that we're giving, laser is wonderful and we so we still do a combination of them. So it's really an important an important aspect of this. After forty years of diabetes, there are patients who still see very well and have good vision. Uh, I think the key is to make sure you're being seen by a and the, and I think the other key is that you're never going to be without your your eye care profession because you know, even if you've had good treatment, you still need to be follow for things that happen. But the retinas, the back of the eye, which we have the, the eye disease, but also the cataracts, are there are there evidence of glaucoma and other things that come on? It could be that there are people with very dry eyes and that must be treated. So all those conditions need to be evaluated uh, for sure. And I would encourage you to see another eye. Eye care profession to make sure that there aren't other things that they can correct as well. If you had cataract surgery, it could be that there's this, uh, that the capsule in which the, you know, the bag in which the, the lens was was removed um, may have opacified. Sometimes you can do a laser, and that can open up. So there are a variety of things that could be looked at, and so I would suggest that you you see the uh, your, your eye care profession for that reason. And and diabetic eye disease is something that we have a lot of treatments for. It's highly preventable. Uh, We have great therapies for it. Again, of course, access to care is important, but you have to be sure that you've been seen. There are people who have terrible eye disease, and diabetic uh, diabetic eye disease, that's totally silent. You don't even see it. Those new blood vessels can be very silent. You can be seen 20-20. The next day, boom, the hemorrhage occurs, and you have vision loss. So it's really important to have a dilated eye exam. In other words, have the drops put into your pupils or it's and big. And the doctor uh, can look at it and decide that whether there's treatment that needs to be given or not because we have such great treatment for that at this point. There's no need for anyone to lose vision from, from diabetic eye disease. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
2: We only have a few more minutes left. Anybody else have any questions for Dr. Chu?
3: I have two questions. This is Sarah.
2: Go ahead, Sarah, go
3: ahead. Um, uh, the first question is for someone who cannot keep her eyes uh, focused or uh, stable on uh, the camera lens to, be, uh, to uh, for a picture to be taken from, let's say, my eyes. Is there any other way to uh, ha- um, take a picture from the back of the eyes, no that's very tough um, I know very good photographers can try and do it very quickly, but it is that's challenging that's very challenging there's nothing you can control or what the camera can control, although with better cameras we can perhaps do it a little bit faster there are certain things we can do, but it's nothing it's not something that we could do well, unfortunately, and, and you probably have some movement in the eye and stagnus, perhaps that makes it hard for for you to stabilize it, and that 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 is not easy. That's difficult. Thank you. And the next question is that uh, that uh, lady Elaine N I H is for just uh, patient with macular or any uh, other kind of uh, retinal diseases. Um, uh, you no, know, you can you can you can send things in, and we can have a look and see what they are. We we have some inherited retinal diseases that are looked at. Uh, we have some protocols for that, but we don't cover everything. We don't do you know things like glaucoma or optic nerve problems, um, and and and, if, and the cornea issues. We don't have a we don't have any protocols on that. So it depends on what what the condition is. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
2: Well, we may only have time for one more question. Anybody out there have a burning question you've been holding out for, then ask now. Well, Emily, I'll ask you the last question then because I get asked it all the time. And people know that for macular degeneration, of course, we have the A-Reds vitamins, but People with other eye conditions always ask me as well, should I take vitamins and would they be helpful for my eyes?
3: Oh, I get that question too. Um, No, I do not think you should be taking those vitamins. They're very high doses. I think you're better off to have a good diet, and we don't know what the effects of those are on other conditions. It's not been tested. The only thing that's been tested is for for age-related macogeneration. So I would strongly say, you know, uh, we don't know what the effects are perhaps it could be harmful, Uh, too much, you know, lutein physmancy might not be good for everything. So I think it's really important you speak to your doctor uh, before you start on anything and making sure that that there is a good indication for it. And clearly uh, the only indication that we've looked at with, with ARITS is really macrogeneration.
2: Yeah. Thank you for that clarification because it always comes up and, uh, you know, people with other eye diseases always feel that, why, how come there aren't any vitamins I can take exactly, my eyes? Exactly,
3: exactly. <laughs> and it also goes through to offsprings of, of patients who are affected. You know, children of, of people who have of macrogeneration often ask that same question. And again, the, the answer is you should have an eye exam. If you don't have those, those that stage I talked about, there's no need for you to be on that. So it doesn't work for anything else. So it's really important to have that, you know, conversation with your doctor. Thank you yeah thank you Emily
2: all right one last call for questions and if there are no other questions then I'm going to ask Sean to wrap up and give us updates on when our next um, town hall meeting will be but again I really appreciate Dr. Emily Chu taking time to come and speak to us today and and it's been a very very informative session and we do have it um, recorded, um, which will be available, and Sean will explain all these things. So again, one last time for a question, and if no one answers, Sean, the floor will be back to you.
3: Yes, do you hear me?
2: Yes, go ahead.
3: I have one question. You touched briefly on the
2: telescopic intraocular lens. What comment do you have about those on the outside, wearing glasses
3: with the uh, uh, BTL on the outside. Question for you, Solomon.
2: Yes, that and what I would say is it's another tool, it's another strategy. And it depends on what you're trying to achieve. I think sometimes people feel that telescopic glasses are like regular glasses just like your doctor writes your prescription and you get a pair of glasses and you say wow this really helped my vision i can now see a distance i can read and then when you develop an eye condition like macular degeneration glaucoma whatever it can be and the regular glasses are not helping as much sometimes many of my patients feel that i now need to just go get telescopic glasses and They look a little funny, but once I put them on, it'll be like seeing with my normal glasses again. And so what I would say is it doesn't work quite like that. This is just a tool. It's a strategy for helping magnify things, and it's a very specific tool that works at distance mainly, not so much for reading. And it takes quite a bit of getting adapted to to wearing telescopic glasses. If it was that simple and straightforward, every day in our day-to-day lives, we will see people wearing telescopic glasses, just like people are walking with a cane or a walker. But you don't see that because it's not that easy to use. It's not that simple to just adapt to. And it is a tool. It is a tool, like I keep emphasizing. It's a strategy to help see something specific. So. Do I have patients who wear telescopic glasses? The answer is yes. And most of them started out with a monocular, just a simple handheld telescope, and they gradually went to the telescope mounted on a pair of glasses, which then becomes called a telescopic glass. But does that glass let them do everything normally like they used to? No, it doesn't but it's a specific tool for something specific they might want to do. So I have children who sit in their classroom who need to see what's on the board. They'll wear telescopic glasses to do that. I know you've heard about driving with telescopic glasses, but the laws in all three jurisdictions are very, very strict as to who could use them, and then you still have to take a road test with them to prove you can actually drive with them, and it's not that easy. So, very few of my patients actually are qualified to drive with telescopic glasses. So, my again, the bottom line is yes, it is an option, it is another tool, it's another strategy. But no, it's not like just a simple pair of glasses you put on, and everything looks clear again. And you should be prepared that its specific use is for something specific that you need to do, and it takes quite a bit of practice to get used to them. And plus, they are expensive. They are not things that you would spend money on unless you're really going to be committed to using them. So you, you need to keep all these caveats in the back of your mind. And for my patients who come to see me and, and see Dr. Dahlia, who now works with me as well, um, we go over this option and it's only with a lot of care that we would ever say, okay, now we're going to prescribe you a pair of telescopic glasses. It would have to be very specific for a very specific use. So I hope that, I hope that helps clarify that. Thank you so much. It's all been very, very uh, specific and informative. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Sean, I'm going to hand back to you. I'm sorry. I've gone over time. Hey, that's okay. These were really great questions.
1: And thank you again, everyone, for joining us. And thank you to Dr. Chu for spending her time to uh, tell us all about what was going on at the National Institute. Institute. Uh, so I just want to let everyone know that our next meeting is planned for November 11th at 11 a.m. That's the second Wednesday in November. So we hope you can all join us then. You will get a reminder in our newsletter, and we'll be sending out a flyer again like we have been. Um, But otherwise, I hope everyone has a great rest of their month of October, and stay safe and stay warm as well. It's starting to get a little chillier. So thank you, everyone.